2 Corinthians chapter 5, beginning at verse 12. You know what I'm going to do? I'm going to read all the way through verse 12 to the end of the chapter, just because it's such a majestic passage of Scripture, and then we'll go through piece by piece and take a look at it together. For we do not commend ourselves again to you, but give you opportunity to glory on our behalf, that you may have something to answer those who glory in appearance and not in heart. For if we are beside ourselves, it is for God, or if we are of sound mind, it is for you. For the love of Christ constrains us, because we judge thus, that if one died for all, then all died, and he died for all, that those who live should live no longer for themselves, but for him who died for them and rose again. Therefore, from now on, we regard no one according to the flesh, even though we have known Christ according to the flesh. Yet now we know him thus no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. Now all things are of God, who has reconciled us to himself through Jesus Christ and has given us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, God was in Christ, reconciling the world to himself, not imputing their trespasses to them, and has committed to us the word of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, as though God were pleading through us. We implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. For he made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Paul begins at verse 12 of this chapter talking again about his ministry. He's battling back and forth with the Corinthian Christians, trying to explain his ministry to them, not just in the sense of justifying himself so they'll have a wonderful opinion of Paul, but you need to understand, if you had a low opinion of Paul, you had a low opinion of Paul's message. And it's for the sake of the message, it's for the sake of the gospel, that Paul very strongly comes forward and defends himself and defends his ministry before the Corinthian Christians. And so he stands just right out front and very plain and says, we do not commend ourselves again to you, but give you opportunity to glory on our behalf. In other words, when Paul finished verses 10 and 11, he was talking about the judgment seat of Christ and the responsibility of each Christian. And he was speaking about it in the terms that he felt fairly confident about his own place before the judgment seat of Christ. And was Paul just bragging? Was he just trying to glorify himself before the Corinthians? No, not at all. Even though Paul had been glorying in his weakness, glorying in his trials, and glorying in his struggles, He wasn't doing it to brag before the Corinthian Christians. Rather, he was doing it to give them opportunity to glory on his behalf. You see, by telling of Paul's weaknesses, by telling of his trials, by telling of his struggles, Paul wanted to give the Corinthian Christians the opportunity to be proud of him. That's what he means when he says to glory on our behalf. Now, might I point out to you, Paul's speaking ironically here. The Corinthian Christians were not interested in glorying in Paul or in seeing any good in his trials. Paul's saying, I'm telling you my weakness. I'm telling you my trials so that you can glory in me. And the Corinthian Christians, what are you nuts, Paul? I don't glory in your trials. I don't glory in your weakness. Matter of fact, the Corinthian Christians would say, we think your trials make you less of an apostle, 
less of a man of God. Not more of an apostle, not more of a man of God, but Paul knew this very well. But he doesn't shy from saying, well, I'll give you the opportunity to glory on my behalf. Why? Look at this. This is so precious at the end of verse 12. That you may have something to answer those who glory in appearance and not in heart. You see, the problem with the Corinthian Christians is that they liked those who gloried in appearance and not in heart. They looked down upon Paul because his glory was not in appearance. Paul's only glory was in his heart. When you looked at the Apostle Paul, he did not look like a winner. He did not look like a guy who was going to take the world by storm. He didn't speak with that spark of charisma that made everybody, oh, wow, we got to go listen to Paul. Wow, he's so impressive. You know, he didn't have that infomercial kind of face. That, wow, boy, this is a successful man. He's writing all the how-to books. Wow, what a guy. Paul didn't have any glory in his appearance. Paul's only glory was in his heart. And the Corinthian Christians didn't like that. They wanted to glory in appearance. They didn't like looking at the heart. But by telling the Corinthian Christians how God was working through his struggles and through his trials, Paul wanted to give them something to answer the people who thought that way. Let me just ask you a simple question, friends. What do you glory in? Are you among those who glory in appearance and not in heart? Remember what the Lord said to Samuel, the prophet. We read in 1 Samuel 16, verse 7, The Lord does not see as a man sees, for man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. We're oftentimes so impressed by a person's image, or so put off by their image, and we often don't see or don't care about their substance. It isn't the appearance is, it isn't that the appearance, I should say, is completely unimportant. There's some importance to appearance. But compared to the heart, the appearance almost is unimportant. And Paul says, listen, you're, you're glorying in appearance and not in heart. I don't want you to do that. He goes on in verse 13 and he says, For if we are beside ourselves, it is for God. If we're of sound mind, it's for you. For the love of Christ constrains us. Now, you know what it means to be beside yourself, don't you? It means to be crazy. Paul says, if we're nuts, if we have irrational behavior, by the way, the Corinthian Christians probably thought Paul was crazy. They looked at this guy and goes, what, you glory in your trials? What, are you nuts? Look at the life you're living, Paul. You are not a successful man. And then you go around talking about the glory of Christ. Mister, you need your head examined. That's what the Corinthian Christians thought. He seemed to be content with a life full of pain, trials, and discomfort because it brought glory to God. And they think, you're crazy. Might I say, in being accused of being beside himself, Paul was in good company. Do you know that Jesus was accused of being out of his mind? Do you know Jesus' own family accused him of being out of his mind? Now, that's the thing. I I think it's interesting. (laughs) that in the book of Acts, Paul appeared before a Roman governor named Festus. And as he preached the gospel to Festus, Festus said, Paul, you're beside yourself. Too much learning has made you mad. And that was a pagan uh, 
king, a pagan governor saying that Paul. Do you know the Corinthians didn't even give Paul that much credit? They didn't even say it was too much learning. They thought he was some kind of masochist. But Paul says, listen, if we are beside ourselves, if we're crazy, if we're nuts, it's for God. Or if we're of sound mind, it's for you. Paul says, listen, guys, you know what? I know I look crazy to you. But I'm not going out trying to look crazy to you. You know, some people are like that. They do things that are crazy or irrational, you know, just, just to have that image. You know, it's some kind of image they want to cultivate by the way they dress or the way they act. Or it's kind of a flamboyant kind of thing. Paul says, listen, it's not about that. It's not about that at all. If I am beside myself, it's for God. I'm doing it for the Lord. Then again, but if you want to think I'm of sound mind, then think I'm acting that way for you. So he goes on and he says, this is so great. If we are beside ourselves, it's for God. If we're of sound mind, it's for you. For the love of Christ constrains us. Paul is motivated, even pushed on by the love of Christ. That's very interesting. What love does he mean? When you talk about the love of Christ, you could be talking about the love that he has for Jesus Christ, right? He could be talking about that, but that's probably not the sense here. What he's talking about is the love that Jesus has for him. And he says, that's what constrains him. You know what the the word constrains means? It's a little bit difficult in the English, but the, the Greek word, the word in the original New Testament language that's translated here, it has the idea of two things. First of all, it has the idea, number one, of being sort of bounded in, of being fenced in, right? Paul's saying that the love of Jesus gave him a narrowness in his focus. It kind of fenced him in. He, he couldn't do anything he wanted because the love of Christ was fencing him in. But there's also another important meaning or idea behind that word, not just of being fenced in and focused, if you will, but it also has the idea of being pushed, of being motivated, of being sent out. And he goes, I'm focused and I'm sent out. Why? Because of the love of Jesus. Paul had to do what he did in ministry because he had received so much love from Jesus that it compelled him to serve other people. Now, friends, can I tell you that this is the greatest foundation for ministry, wanting to give something to other people because Jesus Christ has given us everything. When we really receive the love of Christ, we are touched and it makes us want to serve others. Do you understand that, my friends? That Paul felt compelled by the love of Christ. If you were to go up to Paul and say, Paul, you're nuts. Why are you doing it all? Why all the pain? Why all the trials? He'd say, I have to. I've received the love of Christ. I have the love of Christ in my heart and the sense that I love Jesus. And I have the love of Christ in my heart for all the people that Jesus loves. I am compelled by the love of Jesus Christ. I have to. Friends, That is the motivation for ministry. You know, when you see people really motivated by the love of Christ, then they can really be free to do effective ministry. There's a lot of people out there with different motives in ministry. Sometimes guilt is a great motive in ministry. and Sometimes churches are effective in cultivating guilt as a motivation for ministry, aren't they? You know, a lot of times it comes in, you know... Well, you know, we, we need people for this ministry, and then the guilt thing comes on. You know, 
you love God, don't you, brother? You know, and oh, okay, and guilt motivates them. But guilt isn't a very good motivator for ministry. Some people are motivated for ministry uh, out of a desire to make themselves acceptable to God. You know, the brownie point motivation for, for ministry. You know, God will love me more. God will accept me. I want to be accepted by God, so I have to do this. That's not an effective motivation for ministry. Some people are motivated uh, by ministry or for ministry by ego needs. They're insecure. They, they never know where they stand. They want to do something where they get some attention, some praise from people. Friends, that's not an effective motivator for ministry. Every one of those motivations will end you up either burning out or crashing and burning. It just won't last. But when you're motivated by the love of Christ, you know what? Who cares if nobody appreciates what you're doing? Who cares? That's not why you're doing it. Why are you doing it? Because of the love of Christ. Who cares if it's not working? That's it. You're not doing it to work, to, to have it succeed. You're doing it for the love of Christ. Because it just doesn't matter. The love of Christ is constraining you. It's compelling you. That's what's pushing you on. You're saying, Jesus, I love you so much, I have to do this for you. And I'm doing it for you, Jesus. That's where my heart's at. I just want to do it for you. Do you realize what a glorious place that is? I tell you, it's a precious thing. It's, I, I wish every pastor out there could be motivated by the love of Christ. They just love Jesus so much, they want to serve him. Instead of doing it for all the other things, sometimes the almost sick psychological things that push people into doing ministry. Leave all those things behind. Let the love of Jesus constrain you. I just love you, Lord. I want to serve you. And you know what? You'll never burn out that way. Because when you're in love with Jesus, when you're really doing what you love to do, when you just love to serve him, you don't burn out. Gail Irwin uses this illustration, and I, I can relate to it. You know, you never see, I never have, a burned-out surfer. You know? It's like, oh, man, you know, it's six foot at my favorite surf spot. Nobody's out, and it's like that for the fourth day in a row. I just can't take it anymore. I can't go out. It's just the pressure. I Again and again, it's just, oh, oh, oh. No, you know when surfers get cranky? When they can't surf, Right? Not when they can. It's a, when it's good, you can't give them enough waves. Right? That's all there is to it. They'll just surf as much as they can. Well, you know, it's the same thing because they just love to do that. When you have received the love of Jesus, and when that's your motivator, you just want to do it out of love. And to say that the love of Christ constrains us is also to say that the love of Christ has power it has a force which can bind us and influence us. You know, the love of Christ put Paul's energy into one force. It focused Paul's energy, and it drove him forward to accomplish a goal. It made him a mighty man of power for good, always active, always energetic. Love of Christ has power, my friends. And when you receive it, you'll want to do something good for somebody. Paul goes on here, verse 14. For the love of Christ constrains us because we judge thus that if one died for all, then all died. Now, how did Jesus die for everybody? Friends, let me make this plain. 
Jesus' death does not accomplish the salvation for everybody on this earth. There are some people who teach that, and that's the false doctrine known as universalism. Now, clearly, the death of Jesus is able to bring salvation to everybody who comes to him. And it's a demonstration of the love of Jesus for the whole world. But not in the sense that everybody is saved because Jesus died. But in this context, it's probable that Paul means all the saved. When he uses the term there in verse 14, if one died for all, then all died. The all that he's referring to are probably all saved people, all people who are born again. Because it's only of them that they could be said, then all died. The death he means is that spiritual identification with Christ's death that he mentions in Romans chapter 6 as well. He goes on to say in verse 15, talking about that spiritual identification of death, and he died for all that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them and rose again. If Jesus died for us, it's only fitting that we live for him. Do you realize that, my friends? Jesus died for us and gives us new life but not so that we can live to ourselves, but so we can live for him. The question is simple. Are you living for yourself or are you living for Jesus? That's a very convicting verse, isn't that right there? So that we should live no longer for ourselves. Bottom line, friends, who are you living for? Well, I'm living for my children. Don't live for your children. Live for Jesus. I'm living for my spouse. Don't live for your spouse. Live for Jesus. I'm living for my career. Don't live for your career. Live for Jesus. I'm living for myself. Don't live for yourself. Live for Jesus. Because when you live for Jesus, you're going to end up being a better spouse, a better parent, a better worker, a better person for yourself even. Live for Jesus. Look what he says there, that they should live no longer for themselves, but for him who died for them and rose again. You've read the books or seen the movies or this or that, you know, where somebody dramatically saves the life of another person. And it's usually some Indian movie or something. He goes, oh, you saved my life. Now I must live for you. You know, that kind of thing. And it's true. Jesus saved our souls from hell. We must live for him. Do you realize that God created us to live for him and not for ourselves? It is a corruption of our nature that makes us want to live for ourselves and not for the Lord. Friends, Adam and Eve in the garden did not want to live for themselves. They wanted to live for the Lord. And it was only after they sinned, or should I say as they sinned, that they wanted to live for themselves. I love what it says in Revelation 4.11 in the King James Version, this cry of praise going up to God that says, Thou hast created all things, and for thy pleasure they are created. Friends, we are and were created to live unto God and not unto ourselves. You want an example of this? Again, look at Jesus. Can anybody here for a moment imagine Jesus living unto himself? Living for himself? Jesus never lived a moment of his life for himself. He lived completely unto God the Father. Now, let me say this, though. 
when he says in verse 15, And he died for all that all who live should live no longer for themselves, but for him who died for them and rose again. It does not mean, well, I won't love or serve anybody else but God all my life. You know, I love the Lord. You I could care less about. But I love the Lord, brother. You know, you walk by somebody who's in great need. You know, you drive him to church. And there's some poor mom with four kids with a flat tire on the side of the road struggling with the debt. Well, I can't pull over and help her. i got to get to church because I love God so much. If you love God, pull the car over and help that poor lady. Right? We can't go around with that attitude. Well, I'll burn you because I love God. No, instead, our love for God and our life for God is expressed in our service of others. We need to serve others with the heart that we are living for God. He goes on and he says in verse 16, describing because of this new life, our earthly attachments are much less important. He says, therefore, from now on, we regard no one according to the flesh. Even though we have known Christ according to the flesh, yet now we know him thus no longer. (laughs) Isn't that great what Paul says? He says, you know what? I don't know anybody according to the flesh anymore. Why? Why can Paul say that? Well, let's think of what he said in the last couple chapters. 2 Corinthians 4.18, Paul said, We do not look at the things which are seen, but at the things which are not seen. Now, if that's the principle of your life, how can you look at anybody according to the flesh? In 2 Corinthians chapter 5, Paul said, Our earthly tent will be destroyed, but we have a heavenly body waiting for us. Why look at anybody according to the flesh? Because we walk by faith and not by sight. Then why look at anybody according to the flesh? Because we do not glory in appearance, but glory in heart. Then why look at anybody according to the flesh? Friends, for all these reasons, we don't look to the image and the appearance of the flesh, but the substance of the heart. Friends, how many people do you just write off because of their appearance? Or how many people do you embrace to your heart because of their appearance? Don't know anybody according to the flesh. Paul says, I don't know anybody. I don't regard anybody according to the flesh. And then listen to this. This is even more radical. Verse 16, he says, Even though we have known Christ according to the flesh, yet we now know him thus no longer. You know what Paul's saying? We knew Jesus according to the flesh. And now we know him according to the Spirit. And knowing him according to the Spirit's better, Paul says. Isn't that a mind blower? First of all, it's a mind blower. Because we usually don't think of Paul the Apostle knowing Jesus according to the flesh. But you know, he did. He did. Paul and Jesus lived at the same time. Paul was a prominent, brash, young rabbi at the exact time Jesus was doing his ministry in Galilee and in Jerusalem. You know, there's several occasions on which Jesus, especially in the city of Jerusalem, was confronted by hostile scribes and Pharisees. I would almost guarantee you that Paul was among those Pharisees who got in Jesus' face. It just seems like Paul would be that type. That he would be there. 
That he'd be one of the guys. I know that Paul heard the teaching of Jesus with his own ears. That Paul saw Jesus do miracles. That Paul questioned Jesus and got in his face. Paul says, you know, I'm haunted by that. I remember that. I know that. But let me tell you something. Paul probably looked back upon what he remembered about Christ according to the flesh fondly, but at the same time, he knew that his relationship with Jesus through the Holy Spirit was far better. You know, to know Jesus in the flesh didn't guarantee anything. A lot of people who knew Jesus in person were among that crowd that shouted out, crucify him. No, no. He says, you know what? We knew Jesus according to the flesh, but we know him thus no longer. How many of us sometimes get in the trap of thinking that it would be better if Jesus were with us according to the flesh? I don't know, you ever pray that in your prayers? Oh, Lord, just, you know, Lord, here you are and there you are. You're praying in your bedroom or something. Lord, just send Jesus right now into my room, just just for a quick visit, Lord, just so I could see him, just so I could could see him, touch him, you know. I think we've all been tempted to that kind of prayer. And, you know, it, it, it appeals to a very natural thing in us. But it's not a very spiritual thing. Because, plainly put, even though sometimes we think that it would be better if Jesus were with us according to the flesh, but it would not be, and Jesus knew this. Do you know what Jesus told his disciples? Let me tell you, they didn't understand it when Jesus said it. He said, it is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I depart, I will send him to you. Friends, The ministry of Jesus brought by the Holy Spirit of God was more precious than the ministry of Jesus present in the flesh. And that's why Jesus said, it's better if I go away. And that's why Paul said, even though we have known Christ according to the flesh, yet now we know him thus no longer. The bottom line is simply that the new life Jesus gives us is greater than anything that went before. And he says, verse 17, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. I don't know about you. That's worth reading again. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. You read that? It's a promise, my friends. Who's it a promise for? What's the word? Anyone. Anyone. It's right there in the text. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, it doesn't matter what class, what race, what nationality, what language, what level of intelligence, anyone can be a new creation in Jesus Christ. But notice, who's the promise for? If anyone is in Christ. This is not a promise for those who are in themselves or in the religion of men, or in someone, or in something else. You have to be in Christ. You say, well, how do I get in Christ? Friends, how'd you get in those clothes you're wearing? You made a deliberate choice, didn't you? Right? You could have worn any number of things. Oh, I know, you. some of you stood before your closet, I don't have a thing to wear. <laughs> yeah, but you got a closet full of things you could wear, Right? And you made a choice. You said, I'm going to wear that. And you made a deliberate choice to take something else off and to put something else on. And now you are standing before me. You're sitting before me in those clothes. You're in Christ the same way. You make a deliberate choice to put off other things and to put on Jesus Christ in your heart. 
That's how you do it. And so he says, if anyone is in Christ, if you're in Christ, what? You're a new creation. Old things have passed away. All things have become new. Friends, this is the great principle of regeneration. Jesus Christ changes those who come to him by faith and those who are in Christ. Can I get off on one of my favorite whipping boys here? It's a the Christian slogan, a bumper sticker. And I'm sorry if anybody has this particular bumper sticker or slogan on your car because I don't mean to pick on you, but I, I think it illustrates an inaccuracy in, in doctrine and teaching. You've seen it, haven't you? Sometimes it's a license plate frame, sometimes it's a bumper sticker, and it says, Christians aren't perfect, they're just forgiven. Now, I understand the sentiment behind that, right? The sentiment is something we can all agree with. We as Christians don't go around thinking we're better than everybody and, you know, looking down our nose on people, you know. We realize that we're forgiven sinners and we don't go around thinking, well, you know, we're so much better than all these people going to hell. Right? I understand that. But there's one word in there that really stumbles me. Just. Friends, if the only difference between a born-again person and a non-born-again person, is that one is forgiven of their sins and the other one is not forgiven of their sins, then Paul doesn't know what he's talking about in 2 Corinthians 5.17. Paul says there's more than the difference of just being forgiven. If you're in Christ, you're not just forgiven. You are a new creation. Old things have passed away. All things have become new. You are changed into a new creation. Now, let me say this at the outset then. Therefore, can we not say that it is unfair of us to expect those who are not in Christ to live as if they were a new creation? Why do Christians go around doing that sometimes? We expect people who aren't Christians to live as new creations. What kind of behavior should you expect from a sinner? Sin! However, it is not unfair to expect a changed life from people who say that they are Christians. Charles Spurgeon said, I know no language, I believe there is none, that can express a greater or more thorough and more radical renewal than that which is expressed in the term a new creature. Friends, that's what God makes us, new creatures. Now let me say one other thing here is that being a new creation does not mean we're perfect. We understand that, don't we? We all understand it for ourselves. Sometimes we have a hard time understanding it for other people. But it's true. Being a new creation means that we are changed. Can you see change in your life since you came to Jesus? And it means that we are being changed. Can you see continuing change in your life since you came to Jesus. But friends, do you know when God's work of being a new creation will be finished in your life? When you are resurrected. And that's going to come when you die or Jesus Christ comes and takes his church away in the rapture of the church. Come quickly, Lord Jesus. So friends, you see, that's when it's going to be perfected. Now, there's something else that verse 17 tells us that's very important. It communicates the idea of who makes us a new creation. Who does it? If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. Look at verse 18. Now all things are of God. 
This is something God alone can do in us. This isn't turning over a new leaf. This isn't getting your act together. The life of a new creation is something that God does in us. Now, let me say this. He doesn't do it for you. He does it in you. That's why we're told to put off the old man and to put on the new man. Because God's done it in you. Now let it out. God won't do it for you, but he'll do it in you. So friends, if you've given your life to Jesus Christ, if you're in Christ, God has done it in you. Now let it out. Being a new creation is a gift from God received by faith. Listen, who did the old creation? And I'm talking about the creation of the world. God did it, right? Did you help him out on that? Were you kind of giving God a little bit of advice there, you know? No, God did all his own. And if he did the first creation, he does the new creation. The work of a new creation is even greater than God's work of creating the world. Friends, I I don't know, it's a hard thing for us to talk about anything being hard for God, right? Sometimes we think about that. Oh God, you know, um, I have a a head cold, I can pray about that, but, but she has cancer. Well, I don't know if we can pray for that. Like, one's harder than another for God. So it's hard to talk about things being hard for God, right? But if you could, if you could talk about anything being hard for God, let me tell you something. It was harder for God to make me a new creation than it was for him to create the whole world. You know why? Because what did God create the world out of? Nothing. That means there was nothing to resist him, nothing to fight against him, nothing he had to overcome. Nah, but when he made me a new creation, there's something he had to fight against, right? There was something he had to overcome. There was my stubborn will, my deep prejudice, my ingrained love of sin. All of these things were in opposition to God. And they took aim at defeating his design. But God saw it fit to change me, to make me a new creature in Jesus Christ. So friends, let me tell you something. Living as a new creation is something God works in us using our will and our choices. So we receive the gift of a new creation, but we must also be challenged to live the life of a new creation. But it's God's work in us that we must submit to. That's what it's working about, friends. It's it's God's work in us. It's not something we work in ourselves. So what does he say, verse 17? All things have become new. God doing a new thing in your life? God wants to do a new thing. All the time. A continually new thing. God doesn't want to fix up your old life. Forget about your old life. Let it perish. Let God do a new thing. A lot of times, oh, we want to patch up the old, patch up the old. We bring our wineskins to God. Patch these up, Lord. Patch it up. God says, forget this. Let's start all over. Let's make something new. I've had some cars in my days that, man, they were just a patchwork of old things. It's old things, patched together. I'd, go to the, I'd never buy a new part for the car. I'd always go to the wrecking yard. And you get old part, old part, you know, patch it up, patch up. That is not how the Lord God does his work. He wants to do a new thing. Paul continues on here, verse 18. Huh. 
Now all things are of God, who has reconciled us to himself through Jesus Christ, and who has given us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not imputing their trespasses to them, and has committed to us the word of reconciliation. Friends, Paul is soaring high here. All things are of God, he says. He wants the Corinthian Christians to know that all things are of God. The work of a new creation, our eternal destiny, it's all works of God. It's not anything we earn. It's not anything we achieve. It's all of God. And he says, God, who has reconciled us to himself through Jesus Christ, God has initiated the ministry of reconciliation, even though he was the innocent party. He reconciled us to himself. Friends, we did not reconcile ourselves to him. He reconciled himself to us. Do you understand that? I mean, think if, uh, think if, if the United States was, was involved in some dispute with some pipsqueak nation, and this pipsqueak nation did something terrible against the United States, set off a big bomb in an urban center and said, ah, oh, we declare war on the United States. Do you think we'd stand back and that we would reach out in love and compassion and initiate a reconciliation against that country? No. We'd make our terms. Say, this is the terms, accept it or reject it, or we'll conquer you. We'll blow you out of the water. What does God do to us? He's the offended party, and he initiates the reconciliation. Might I remind us, friends, God did not do anything wrong to us. And yet he initiates the reconciliation. Mm, Very importantly, we need to see that God did this. It says right here in verse 18 that he reconciled us to himself through Jesus Christ. Friends, those are very important words. God did not reconcile us to himself by neglecting his holy justice or by giving in to sinful, rebellious humanity. Parents, do you know what I'm talking about? Your kids are bratty. They're smarting off. They deserve to be disciplined. But you give in to them because you're just too tired and you don't want to deal with it. And your kids think, hey, this is great. Oh, man, things are, you know, wow, how are things between you and mom and dad? Oh, great, they'd say. But are they really great? No. No, they're not. You've given in and you've made some kind of peace. You've made some kind of reconciliation. But at the expense of justice, at the expense of what's done right, friends, God did not do it by giving in to sinful, rebellious humanity. He did it by an amazing, righteous sacrifice of love. God demands not one bit less justice and righteousness for man under Jesus but the demand has been satisfied through Jesus Christ. Oh, no, friends. It's not God up in heaven standing there crying out, Ollie, Ollie, and come free. You know, just let's all just come home. You know, I'm sorry. Let's just reconcile. Can't we all just get along? Come on up to heaven. God says, no, there's a holy debt that justice and righteousness demands be paid. And God demands that it's paid. And we couldn't pay it except by perishing in hell. So God sent his son that through Jesus the price could be paid. And that's why Paul's so excited when he says in verse 18 that he's given us the ministry of reconciliation. Friends, God 
now expects us to take up the ministry of reconciliation, and he's committed to us the word of reconciliation. By the way, I, just, I could go on a long time about this, but I won't. But let me just say, reconciliation comes by the word of reconciliation. The word of God brings reconciliation. God uses the preached word to reconcile men and women to himself. When I say preach, I don't necessarily mean from a pulpit. It could be over a, a table at a coffee house. Friends, God uses the word to bring reconciliation. And then in verse 19, friends, this is holy stuff. That is, God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself. Friends, think of Jesus hanging on the cross. And sometimes we think that on the cross, it was the Father versus the Son. But it wasn't that way. The Father was in the Son, reconciling the world to himself. The Father was working in the Son, and he was working in God the Son. He was reconciling the world to himself. The Father and the Son worked together on the cross. And friends, to say that God was in Christ, reconciling the world to himself, it's all the more amazing when we understand it in light of what happened on the cross. Friends, at some point before Jesus died, before the veil was torn in two, before Jesus cried out, it is finished, an awesome spiritual transaction took place. The Father lay upon the Son all the guilt and all the wrath that our sin deserved. And Jesus bore it in himself perfectly totally satisfying the wrath of God for us. And friends, as horrible as the physical suffering of Jesus on the cross was, this spiritual suffering, this act of being judged for sin in our place, this is what Jesus really dreaded about the cross. This was the cup of God's righteous wrath that Jesus drank. And and on the cross, Jesus became, as it were, an enemy of God who was judged by the Father and forced to drink the cup of the Father's fury so that we would not have to drink that cup. Yet at the same time, Paul makes it clear that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself. They were working together. Yes, Jesus was being treated as if he were an enemy of God, but he was not. Even as Jesus was being punished as if he were a sinner, at the same moment he was performing the most holy service unto God the Father ever offered. That's why Isaiah can say in Isaiah 53.10, it pleased the Lord to bruise him. In and of itself, the suffering of the Son did not please the Father, but it accomplished the work of reconciling the world to himself, and it was completely pleasing to God the Father. Again, and so that's why it says in verse 19, God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not imputing their trespasses to them. Why? Why Why would not God charge our sins to us? That's what it means to impute trespasses. Why did God not charge our sins against us? Because God's gone soft? God's given all of mankind a get-out-of-hell-free card? Not at all. It's because our trespasses were imputed to Jesus. Friends, the justice our sin demanded is satisfied, not excused. 
Let me say this as well. That if God set aside his wrath or his justice to save sinners, if God saved on the basis of just saying, well, let's let bygones be bygones. Here's that get out of hell free card. If God did that, then the cross was no demonstration of love. The cross was an exhibition of unspeakable cruelty and justice. It was the misguided attempt of Jesus at do-goodism. Because if our sin could just be excused, then it never needed to be satisfied at the cross. No, but because it did need to be satisfied, God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself. And that's why Paul says we've been given the word of reconciliation, verse 20. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, as though God were pleading through us. We implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. Paul sees that he's serving in a foreign land as a representative of a king. The king has a message, and Paul's delivering that message as though God were pleading through him. There's so much in that idea of an ambassador. Paul's saying, I'm an ambassador. You know, an ambassador does not speak to please his audience, but the king who sent him. Friends, if I'm the ambassador from a kingdom and I go to another country, I don't care what those people from that other country think. I'm not hired to please them. I'm hired to please my king. And my king gives me a message and I go and I deliver it to that country where I'm living. That's my only job. I represent the king. And you know what? If they don't like my message, it doesn't hurt my feelings. They can take it up with my king. An ambassador does not speak on his own authority, and the opinions of the ambassador don't mean anything. I could stand before the people in my foreign country and say, well, you know, they could ask me, well, what do you think about this issue? And I'd say, well, who cares what I think? I'm here on behalf of my king. You and I could talk about this or that or what my opinion, but it doesn't matter. I'm delivering a message. I simply would say what I've been commissioned to say. Might I say this, though? An ambassador is more than a messenger. The honor and the reputation of his home country are in his hands. And so Paul says, I'm ambassador. It's a glorious title for Paul and the other apostles. But I don't know. I don't know what's more striking here, this word ambassadors in verse 20. Or look at this. Please look carefully at verse 20. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ as though God were pleading through us. Friends, do you see it? Why should God plead for us? Why? Listen, I I can understand why God might set up a way that men could be saved. And then just stand back and say, take it or leave it. It's up to you. I did what I could. Do you see the heart of God towards man? Pleading. Pleading. That's a humble place. But God is pleading with man. And he says, we implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. As an ambassador, Paul makes a simple, strong plea, be reconciled to God. And friends, might I say, that this makes it clear that the work of reconciliation mentioned previously in the chapter does not work apart from our will. It does not work apart from our choice. Who are the ones reconciled to God? The ones who have responded to Jesus' plea. They've been reconciled to God. We must be reconciled to God. He doesn't have to be reconciled to us. 
We're in the wrong, not him. Paul's saying, we implore you, be reconciled to God. Now again, might I say this too? We are not commanded to do the reconciliation work between us and God. He has done the work. It's merely ours to embrace and receive. Spurgeon said, it is not so much reconcile yourselves as it is be reconciled. Yield yourselves to him who round you now the bands of a man would cast, drawing you with cords of love because he was given for you. Submit yourselves. Yield to the grasp of those hands who were nailed to the cross for you. And finally, verse 21. This is how God made reconciliation possible. For he made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. First of all, this tells us that Jesus knew no sin. Not that Jesus didn't know about sin. Not that Jesus wasn't tempted to sin. He knew sin in that sense. He knew about sin. He knew what temptation felt like. No doubt about it. But he never committed a sin his whole life. Not in word, not in thought, not in deed. Jesus never committed a sin of commission. You know what that means, to go out and do a sin. Jesus never committed a sin of omission. You know what that is. It's to not do something that you should. Friends, instead, he made him who knew no sin to be sin for us. Now, to me, this is remarkable. Under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, Paul carefully chooses his words. He does not say that Jesus was made to be a sinner. Jesus was never made a sinner, but he did become sin for us. Even his becoming sin was a righteous act of love. It was not an act of sin. Jesus was not a sinner. Even on the cross, he was not a sinner. But on the cross, the Father treated him as if he were a sinner. Yet all the time, sin was outside of Jesus, not inside of him. It was never part of his nature as it is with us. Spurgeon said, Christ was not guilty and could not be made guilty, but he was treated as if he were guilty, and because he willed to stand in the place of the guilty. Yea, he was not only treated as a sinner, but he was treated as if he had been sin itself in the abstract. This is an amazing utterance. The sinless one was made to be sin. I don't know if I can understand it. But I want you to note well that it says there in verse 21, for He made him. This is the work of God himself. Do you understand this? The Father and the Son, and might I add the Spirit as well, they were in perfect cooperation on the work of the cross. This means that the work of the atonement on the cross was the work of God. And might I say something? When God does something, he does it right. God does it work all the way. He didn't do a halfway work. God did the work of atonement on the cross. That means it's finished. It's a completed work. Can't you let be God say, can't you let God be satisfied with his own work of atonement? Oh no, Lord, I gotta add to it. Oh no, Lord, I gotta make my own way before you. Oh no, Lord, I can't be clean until I've punished myself, until I've punished them, until somebody's been punished. No, I'll tell you who was punished for your sin. Jesus was punished for your sin. God satisfied with it. God did the work. It's gotta be enough for us. 
finishes the chapter. Did you see that, friends? Look at it. He made him who knew no sin to be sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God in him. You understand? You get the deal here? What do you give Jesus? Your sin and all of its filth and all of its guilt. That's what you give him. And what does he give you? His righteousness. Sounds like a good deal to me, my friends. You're not going to find a better deal than that anywhere. It's a tremendous exchange, all prompted by the love of God for us. Friends, do you understand that? It's the righteousness of what? The righteousness of God. Not your righteousness. You know, a lot of people think that that's what God's goal is, is to give you your best righteousness. You know, what God wants to do is he wants to make me how I am at my very best. Forget that. You at your very best, me at my very best, we're destined for hell. Or God makes, wants to make me like we were in the Garden of Eden, you know, just like it was with Adam and Eve. Friends, let me tell you something. Adam never had the righteousness of God. He had the righteousness of a perfect man, but he never had the righteousness of God. You can have in Jesus more than Adam ever had. Friends, it's the righteousness of God. Greater than the righteousness of Adam, greater than the righteousness of any angel, we can have the righteousness of God in our life. You can walk away from this room tonight knowing that you have the righteousness of God in your life. That God looks down upon you and he sees you as a finished work, as a, as a new creation in Christ. You say, well, I look at my life and I don't think it looks very finished, but God looks at you in Christ. And he sees you as having the righteousness of God himself. That's got to get you pumped up, doesn't it? You say, well, wait, I, it's not fair. It's not right. I mean, I don't, I'm not that good. Now you're catching on. That's right. Just keep going along that same way. It's not fair. It's not, you don't have this. You're not that good. Nobody is. It's the free gift of God towards you. I pray that tonight that at least one soul will stop trying to justify themselves before God and receive what Jesus Christ has done on their If one person does that tonight, That's worth repeating this sermon ten times. But I trust we can all do it. And leave here tonight knowing that he made him who knew no sin to be sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Father, we thank you for your word. We praise you together tonight, Lord. And uh, we just want to worship you and thank you for the righteous work of Jesus Christ on our behalf. Thank you, Lord, for uh, helping me in this message tonight and just all your goodness and your grace. And I pray that you just pour out your spirit in a wonderful way. In Jesus' name, amen.